Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Broken spears lie in the roads. We have torn our hair in grief. The houses are roofless now and their walls are reddened with blood. Worms are swarming in the streets and plazas and the walls are splattered with gore. The water has turned red, as if it were dyed, and when we drink it, it has the taste of brine. We have pounded our hands in despair against the adobe walls for our inheritance. Our city is lost and dead. The shields of our warriors were its defense, but they could not save it. We have chewed dry twigs and salt grasses. We have filled our mouths with dust and bits of adobe. We have eaten lizards, rats, and worms. That was a translation of a Nahuatl lament, probably written in the 1540s. And the phrase broken spears, it's been described as perhaps the most famous Nahuatl phrase in English because it was used as the title of the translation of a book by the Mexican historian Miguel Leon Portillo. But Dominic, yes, Tom. would you like me to do a linguistic deep dive here? Even if you don't, I'm still going to do it. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just going to say yes then. Because apparently Broken Spears is a mistranslation. Really? It should actually be Shattered Bones. Shattered Bones. And the reason I know this is because it's a footnote in Camilla Townsend's wonderful book, Fifth Son, yeah. where she discusses it. So we like to go deep, don't we, in this podcast? Yes. And I hope that people will be impressed with my command of Nahuatl Spanish English translation. Well, Tom, what's lovely about your linguistic analysis here is this is the first time in this mighty series that we've had an introduction that I didn't write. <laughs> yes. Um, okay, yes. And that's commendably modest on your part. Because, of course, yeah. we're doing this series because your new book for children, The Fall of the Aztecs, is out. And I guess that after the seven episodes we've had, I mean, it puts in perspective perhaps the challenge of rendering this story not just for children, but for adults as entertainment. Because on one level, I mean, there's no question, it's unbelievably entertaining, dramatic, extraordinary story, the inspiration for so much science fiction that has been written since. On another level, I mean, it is a deeply traumatic narrative, isn't it? Yeah. And the horrors with which it culminates, you know, brains splattered and hair torn out in grief and all that. I mean, this is very upsetting and unsettling. I think there are two dimensions to this, Tom. So at one level, you can say that's all history to some extent, isn't it? Of course. People are fascinated with history. We read it for pleasure, so many of us. But so often what it describes is very dark and people are always drawn to the extremes. That's why books on the world wars are so successful. Well, I suppose, but I suppose also the sacking of cities. I mean, it lies at the heart of the two great traditions that underpin the West cultural inheritance, the Greek and the biblical. Yeah. The sacking of Troy, the sacking of Jerusalem. Yes. But also, Tom, I mean, any history, but whether it be for children or for adults, actually, there's a balance between kind of prurient voyeurism, pornography of violence, I suppose you might call it, and being sufficiently sensitive and respectful towards people in the past whose lives were destroyed. The other element, of course, is that this has an additional dimension in recent years because this is one of the great foundational moments of European colonialism. Mm. So it carries a kind of charge now that it might not have done 50 years ago, certainly in the West. Except that it does come to carry a charge in Protestant countries, doesn't it? So we, as English speakers, are heirs to that Protestant tradition. The Black Legend, Tom. The Black Legend. Yes. In which what the Spanish do in Mexico, oddly drawing on Spanish witnesses. I mean, so Bartolomé Las Casas, the friar whose records of Spanish atrocities we have cited regularly throughout these episodes... But Protestants draw on this to construct an image of the Spanish as uniquely oppressive and satanic. Yes. So to mention two writers that we've talked about a lot in this series, if people want a sense of the kind of debate, they could just read a book by Matthew Restall on the one hand, who emphasizes what he sees as the near genocidal approach of the Spaniards. And then you read Fernando Cervantes on the other, who is very keen to dispel what he sees as the black legend. And to say the Spanish are not, you know, uniquely greedy and rapacious and sadistic as they were painted by 
Protestant writers from the 16th century onwards. And so to what extent do you think the tradition exemplified, say, by Matthew Restall today, he's writing in English. Yeah. I mean, he is English. Yeah. He's not writing as a practicing Protestant. But to what extent do you think the sense of the Spanish conquest as something to be condemned is an inheritance of those deep, deep Protestant traditions? Mm, that's a good question. I mean, it's dressed up in progressive rather than yes. Protestant language, isn't it? But the themes are quite similar. The themes are similar, right. And the Protestant tradition of the Black Legend, the idea of the Spanish as greedy and sinister and sadistic, has had a long afterlife. That said, when you go into the details of the conquest and then what happens immediately afterwards... They are dark. They are pretty dark. Okay, so should we get into them and then perhaps we come back to yes. looking at how this right. story has been processed and understood over the centuries? So we ended last time, Tom. We're in August 1521. The city of Tenochtitlan has fallen, but of course history doesn't stop there. Actually, it's one thing that Camilla Townsend's book, Fifth Son, is brilliant at that saying. Yeah, it's brilliant on that, isn't it? People yeah. don't say, oh gosh, this is the end of a chapter in history. The Spanish conquest has happened. For a lot of people, life is rolling on with all its vicissitudes. Cortes is still desperate to find gold. The whole operation, the whole enterprise that he started all these years ago was based on making his investors, co-investors rich. And it's clear that he doesn't find as much gold as he wanted to. Um, quite quickly, the Spanish are beating and torturing their prisoners. Do they manage to dredge any out of the lake? I think they don't, actually. There's some indication they sent divers into the lake and they couldn't find it. Maybe it's lost. So it could be buried beneath the streets of Mexico City to this day. It could be conceivably because, of course, that lake is now Mexico City. That's one of the extraordinary things that you go to Mexico City and you are walking yeah. over the lake on which these naval battles and things happened. So they don't find anything like the gold they expected. Some of Cortez's men mutter and grumble and say, well, Cortez and the captains have probably got it all for themselves. I mean, this is a standard kind of conquistador theme. The ferocity of the Spanish, I think, is, is partly explicable because of their frustration. They pillage some of the lakeside towns. There's stories about them setting dogs on priests and dignitaries and things in an attempt to torture out of them the location of all this hidden gold that they're convinced is there. And this kind of lust for gold. Yes. I mean, has been motivating them in their atrocities right from the beginning. Yeah. I'm quoting the Ennio Morricone soundtrack <laughs> from yeah. The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. Very there. good. Very good. People say lust for gold. I mean, they, they want gold, not because they have some peculiar fixation with gold, but because gold is divisible and portable. Can be transferred back to Spain. Exactly. They can transfer it back to Spain. It won't rot. It won't, you know, it's the best resource through which they can make themselves rich. But they just haven't got enough. Cuauhtémoc, after all those empty promises, Cortés tortures him, the emperor. They tie him to a pole. To find if he's buried gold. If he's buried gold. They pour oil on his feet and they set his feet on fire. And the eyewitness account says... He said nothing to them. He merely smiled as if he were taking a steam bath. And there were some amazing murals. We talked about these in one of our live shows, Tom. Yeah. The amazing murals by David Sigueros and other kind of Mexican muralists. These are in Mexico City. And they show Cuauhtémoc being tortured by the Spaniards. And the Spaniards look like these terrifying kind of stormtrooper-like figures because these murals are done in the 1930s. And Malinche watching as well. Malinche watching through a sort of gap in the Spaniards' helmets. Cortes, meanwhile, he has established his headquarters, as we said last time, in Coyoacan. You can see his headquarters. It's this kind of low-level, one-story, red-painted, very Spanish-looking kind of mansion complex. On one level, Cortes has been a, a great winner. All his gambles have paid off. There is talk that he is called Your Highness by his fellows. There's talk that he's going to award his captains knighthoods. There are even some rumors that he will call himself a king. He's so far away from Spain. Of course, he doesn't do that. He's always a bit anxious because, of course, he has broken the law. Right. And he has the fat and jolly Velasquez. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Back in Cuba to deal with. I know, Tom, what you're thinking. You're thinking that you're Cortez and I'm Velasquez. No, I'm not saying it. No. Yeah. You're cruel, rapacious, and ultimately a cold person. I'm a great, hospitable guy. No, I was thinking more that I'm Moctezuma and you're Cortez. <laughs> I yeah. You're a formidable... You've taken me prisoner and forcing me to do endless episodes on the Aztecs. Yeah. That's so harsh because I'm desperate to do them as well. It's an unworthy joke. So when I'm gone, you'll say of me, ultimately a mediocre and dishonest man. <laughs> <laughs> a bad man. Yes. And a mediocre. <laughs> um, well, anyway, this particular mediocre man, although I don't think he is mediocre, I think he is a no, I terrifyingly ruthless opportunist. So that autumn, to Velasquez's horror, Charles V confirms Cortes 
as governor, captain general. Because the scale of his achievement is evident, do you think? Yes, I think he has no choice. Rather than the wealth that he's sending. I mean, he is sending some wealth. He's sending something. He's not sending nothing. But I think you're right. The stories that are going back to Europe, I mean, it must seem barely believable. Yeah. Is Cortez a hero across Europe? This is the interesting thing. Even at this point, it's not modern wokery to say Cortez is a very, very ambiguous, if not downright dislikable figure. Because even at the time, I think there is an unease. You know, I think Charles V, for example, would say that he is very uneasy with the idea of kind of rampaging in to somebody else's kingdom, toppling them, and just taking it. Kings don't tend to like that kind of behavior. Right, because all the legalism that surrounds the narrative of Moctezuma handing over his empire to the king, I mean, who cares what the Mexica think among the Spaniards? It's about how they're presenting it to people back in Europe. Exactly. It needs to seem legal. Exactly, exactly. It cannot just be a ruthless land grab. So even at this point in the the early decades of European colonialism, there is a sense that just to barge in willy-nilly, kill everybody and take their lands is wrong. You have to have a legal pretext. And that's why there's all this fiction of Montezuma surrendering his kingdom and then the Aztecs being incited into this disgraceful rebellion. And also this is laying foundations for the sense that indigenous peoples do have rights to the lands that they inhabit. Yes. Which will be woven into the international law that emerges in the 19th century. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, jumping ahead of ourselves, people like the Tlaxcalans, they are very jealous of those legal rights and their role as allies of the Spaniards. And they maintain it for many, many years to come, centuries to come, that they are self-governing, they have special privileges under the Spanish crown, and they do. Yeah. And if they're ever challenged, they go to law, they go to court. Yeah. They will send people to Spain to fight for their rights, and the Spanish will often acknowledge that. So the legalism is not just a fantasy or a fiction. It's real. Yeah, and that is the kind of the paradox of it, that the crimes of the conquistadors are judged by the same legal system that the Spanish are also bringing in. Yes, exactly. And that's another theme throughout European colonialism. It is, absolutely it is. On Cortez himself. Some of our very keenest listeners may remember Cortez actually has a wife. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Since episode one, Cortez has a wife that Velazquez had forced him to marry on Cuba, Catalina Suarez. Now, she has been waiting all this time to find out what's going on with her husband, who's off in Mexico. She hears the news that he's won and he doesn't call for her. And eventually she runs out of patience and she and her sister travel to Tenochtitlan themselves. And they get there late summer, early autumn. Oh, hello, darling. <laughs> exactly. Now, she is welcomed as a queen. Yeah. You know, people say, gosh, Cortez's wife, the wife of His Highness Cortez, the new master. Hurrah, hurrah for her. His mansion, the accounts that we have, there are rumors and stories that his mansion in Coyoacan is already filled with various women. And what about Malinche? Malinche, almost certainly among them. Malinche is pregnant at this point. And not long after Catalina's arrival, Melinche gives birth to a little boy whom she christens Martin Cortez. Okay. So that's kind of giving the game yeah. away a bit. And then something extraordinary happens. On All Saints Day, the 1st of November, mm-hmm. Cortez holds a party at his house in Coyoacan. There's music and stuff, dancing and all this. And Cortez and Catalina are seen quarreling or exchanging harsh words or something. And she goes to bed before him and then he follows. And in the middle of the night, he wakes the house. And he says, a terrible thing has happened. I found my wife dead in her room. She must have had a fit. I knew she had a very weak heart. What a terrible business. She must have accidentally thrown herself out of the window kind of thing. Exactly that. Very few people are allowed to see her body. She's buried in great haste. And from that point onwards, among the other Spaniards, there are rumors that he killed her, that he murdered her, he strangled her because she was in the way. Cramping his style. Because he lost patience with her, shouting at him about his mistresses. Who knows? And those rumors never, ever go away. And I don't think you have to be unduly harsh or censorious to think that that is part of a pattern with Cortez. He uses women. And he dumps them. And he dumps them. And he is a brutal man. But also the other thing must be that he has been in command for so long and he has been reaching out after what he wants for so long that the idea that he's going to pay attention to the strictures of anyone is... Fantasy. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. Because conquering Tenochtitlan was the high point in his life, and he doesn't really know what to do with himself, I think, afterwards. He clearly fancies himself as the master of Mexico. His original plan was to build himself an entirely new capital. So, not far from Mexico City, there is an entirely new Spanish city called Puebla, 
beautiful city, actually. It looks like, you know, a Spanish city. And that was their original plan. But eventually, Cortes clearly fancies the idea of becoming basically the new emperor of the Aztecs. So rebuilding Tenochtitlan and building a new city on the ruins of the old. And he will lay claim in inhabiting that city. He will lay claim to the, the prestige of Montezuma and his predecessors. And so what's impressive about this, and as you say, I mean, they're very beautiful, these buildings that are built in the kind of the earliest years of the Spanish conquest, is that they must be built by Mexican workmen. Oh, they are. They absolutely are. I mean, so they adapt to the expectations of Renaissance architecture very rapidly. They do. That's a very good point, Tom. So Cortes gets an architect from Europe to design the new city, a guy called Alonso García Bravo. The plan is that basically it will be stratified on ethnic lines. So the center will be Spanish mansions for the conquistadors and the Mexica will be confined to the outskirts. So again, another colonial theme being established. There you go. Yeah. Yep. They tear down the temples. They use the, I mean, could you get greater symbolism? They use the stones of the great temple to build the new cathedral in Mexico City, a cathedral which incidentally is currently sinking. So the cathedral in Mexico City is gradually collapsing, which is an extraordinary thing. They also use the stones to build a massive new palace for Cortes, which still stands. It's in the center of the Zocalo in, um, in Mexico City. But as you say, Tom, the people who actually do the work are the Mexica, the Aztecs themselves. A visiting friar or monk said that he couldn't believe how enthusiastic they were. He said they seemed to be delighted by doing the work, and they were particularly fascinated by the Spanish building technology. So the carts and the wheelbarrows and the hammers and the chisels made of iron and, and all of these kinds of things. Well, this is one of the themes of Camilla Townsend's book, that actually the conquered don't just sit around and kind of gaze into the abyss, that they do pull themselves together. Yes. They do say, well, you know, day will follow and night will follow and so it goes on. And they carry on living. They do. Because this monk says, there was such a great fervor that the laborers sang and their songs and their voices barely ceased at night. He's not going to make that up. No. I wouldn't have thought. So life does go on in a sense. The city ends up being renamed, of course, Ciudad de Mexico, because the Spanish apparently struggle with the name Tenochtitlan, but also, of course, a new name. Yeah, a new start. Signals a new era, although they're using the word Mexica, Mexico. But it's some of the cities follows the street plan of Tenochtitlan, actually. Mm. So you can sort of stand in places and think, you know, I'm standing now where the gate was. And there's a mural where Cortes and Montezuma are supposed to have met. And there are stretches, aren't there, of canals? There are still some canals in the south of the city, exactly. Yeah. As for the rest of Mexico, the estates that belong to the Mexica, to the emperors and so on, they are parceled out. They're called encomiendas. Big estates and each encomienda is given to a different conquistador. The landscape itself is changing all the time, of course, because they are bringing over, as in the Caribbean, yeah. cows, pigs, sheep, all of these things, and new crops, things like olives and grapevines and things to grow in the, in the new world. But the funny thing about this, you see, what makes it so ambiguous and so interesting is that the people who are working on these lands are not slaves. They are more like peasants in feudal kind of medieval Europe. And actually, the question which Camilla Townsend's book, Fifth Son, really brings out is, how much do people notice that something has changed? Because up in the villages and away from the centres of habitation, life goes on. Yes, exactly. Exactly so. So, of course, they're also utterly ravaged by the smallpox. Mm -hmm. So for most people, I think this is probably the year of the smallpox rather than the Spaniards. If you're working in the fields, do you even see the Spaniards? You know, you're conscious that your tribute payments go to somebody different. And the Aztec aristocracy, it's not like the Norman Conquest. They're not all decapitated. The heirs of Moctezuma, I mean, this is why they buy into the idea that Moctezuma had submitted to the Spanish, is because it gives them a claim you know, that they can then use in Spanish law courts to keep hold of their lands. They do it very successfully. Because they end up being treated with respect. The Spanish are very, very deferential towards rank and legalism and hierarchy and all these kinds of things. I mean, presumably you have to convert to Christianity to get that. If you convert to Christianity, if you say, God, I love Charles V. I can't get enough of Charles V. I'm so delighted to be living in this new Spanish imperium. If you do all these things, then you can have your own estate. You can prosper. You can go to Madrid and sue the king for your own your historic privileges and all those kinds of things. I mean, of course... That's not to say it's sweetness and light, and there's not all kinds of exploitation and violence. Well, Matthew Restles, the final chapter in his book on Moctezuma meeting with Cortes, gives a terrifying 
portrait of it. I mean, it's, you know, it's like the kind of Nazi occupation of Poland. Mass rape. Yeah. Slaughter. How would you square his portrayal of, of, of the horrors of it? With Camilla Townsend's. Well, it's not so much. I mean, Camilla Townsend is saying that people, they live lives as they must do. But I have also read accounts that say that actually there are whole reaches of Mexico where the Spanish barely reach, where people continue to worship the old gods. Which is certainly true. It would come as news that Tenochtitlan had fallen. Yeah. So, I mean, if you're in the eye of the storm, then it's terrible, but equally, you know, it could just completely pass you by. I think it's a very complicated picture, Tom, and actually to impose one verdict on the whole thing is wrong because, of course, there are some places, I mean, Tlaxcala most obviously, effectively it's a republic under the King of Spain, Tlaxcala's are left alone, Europeans are not allowed to settle in Tlaxcala. Yeah. They've done brilliantly out of this. They've defeated their age-old enemies. They now have a new imperial overlord in the King of Spain, but the King of Spain regards them with, you know, affection because they're his allies. So as far as they're concerned, great, anything but the Mexica. If you're one of the Mexica or their allies, life is terrible and you are subject to the violence of the conquistadors. Your family could have been sold into slavery, all of these things. Awful. But if you're in an outlying region, and particularly the further away from Tenochtitlan you are, and the more rural, the more difficult to reach, the chances are you could live your life and never yeah. lay eyes on a Spaniard, I would guess. And of course, in some of these parts that are really difficult to reach, in the Yucatan, for example, I mean, there... They still supposedly worship Tlaloc to this day, apparently. I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, there are plots that are not even nominally conquered until the end of the 17th century. So the idea that the conquest of Mexico is done and dusted no. by the early 1520s is obviously completely wrong. And Dominic, one other thing that, that happens within, what, a decade of the fall of Tenochtitlan is that the Virgin Mary appears to a peasant. Oh, right. Yes. I thought we'd get onto that. And speaks to him in Nahuatl. Yes. So that's the Virgin of Guadalupe, who supposedly appears to a guy called Juan Diego, who gets a sort of image imprinted on his cloak. What is so interesting about that story, Tom, is first of all, it probably didn't happen <laughs> because the accounts that we have come are later. And it's probably been kind of back projected. And secondly, the place where that happens, which is a hill called Tepeac, which is north of Lake Texcoco, was already a pilgrimage site. I think this is a really interesting element of the story. So it had been sacred to the Aztec goddesses Tonantzin and Chico Mecoatl, who are the goddesses of the earth and of farming kind of fertility. So very like the way that the Parthenon, the temple to Athena, becomes a church dedicated to the Virgin. Exactly. So when people are going to this shrine, the shrine of the Virgin of Guadalupe, they are not necessarily completely breaking with the traditions of their ancestors. They're actually going to the same place their ancestors might well have gone to. But also the Virgin weeps over the sufferings of her dead son. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if that is a way in for people to this new understanding of the supernatural. Yeah, no, Tom, on the religious element, I know the religious element you obviously find fascinating and understandably so. I mean, this is the most obvious of all the changes that sweeps over what they call New Spain, what becomes Mexico. But even then, it's it's so complicated because it's quite syncretic, isn't it? Yeah. The friars who arrive in Mexico, they say, well, we've got to make allowances for these people. We've got to allow them to keep up some of their old customs. So, for example, they're very happy to allow the indigenous Mexican people to worship in open-air chapels that are like their old temples. And the stonemasons who carve the things in the new chapels, the old gods are often depicted alongside Jesus and Mary. And there are even some claims, I don't know how true this is, because this all perhaps sounds too good to be true, that they use the old sacrificial stones mm. to build altars and things. I just wonder whether the story of suffering and the underdog. The suffering yes. and resurrection. Because the idea of life coming from the dead is what underpins the cult of Chipitotec. Mm -hmm. You know, wandering around in flayed skins might seem a long way from Good Friday, but there is a kind of narrative there of, of hope emerging from the bleakest despair that perhaps does speak to people. I mean, Mexico does end up a very Catholic country. It does. I don't know. I don't know enough about it. Tom, I think that's very plausible, but there's another element to it, which is, of course, Christianity is the religion of the winners. Yes, of course. I mean, that absolutely goes without saying, but it has always been a paradox of Christianity. You know, it is the religion of the winners. It's the most practiced religion across the world, but at the same time, it offers a peculiar sense of identification with the divine to those who have suffered, those who have, yeah. you know, being tortured or persecuted. Anyway, listen, Dominic, let's 
take a break here. And when we come back, perhaps we could look at what happens to some of the protagonists in this story. And then, you know, just kind of have a brief think about what exactly the status of this episode is in the context of world history and perhaps of the politics today. Very good. Hello, welcome back to the last segment of our eight-part epic on the fall of the Aztecs. And Dominic, we said at the end of the previous part that we would look at what happens to some of the protagonists in this story. So first of all, Cortez. What happens to Cortez? Well, before we do that, Tom, just one last thing. If anybody is is still listening, if you've made it through, congratulations. You are the hardiest of the hard. Rest is history, aficionados. Well done. And thank you for listening so far, because I don't think, Tom, we've ever... Never done anything in this Done anything in this detail. So Cortez... The story of Cortez is the story of all conquistadors, really. They all just fall out with each other once they've won, and everything is very miserable. And they generally prove not to be as good at governing no. as they are at conquering. I mean, all he's ever been is a, as a sort of low-rent notary. So why would he be the great kind of chief executive of a state? Of course he wouldn't. If you don't like the conquistadors, you'll be pleased to hear that most of the conquistadors come to relatively sticky ends or die in obscurity or die poor because they've been sued by each other or they've been, you know, in some way punished by the Spanish crown or whatever. In Cortez's case, Cortez is there in Mexico City. And in 1524, he sends one of his most trusted allies, one of his most trusted captains, a guy called Cristobal de Olid, off with 500 men to Honduras in the south, because they've heard that Central America is the place for gold. Still this thirst for gold. In absolutely classic conquistador fashion, Cristobal de Olid stops on his way in Cuba, where he meets their old friend Diego Velázquez, and agrees to do a deal with him and to sell out Cortes and to establish a separate principality in Honduras. Cortes goes absolutely mad when he hears this, and he decides to pursue Olid down to Honduras. Now, Cortes thinks of himself as a very grand man these days, so he takes a huge company with him. 3,000 native troops, Tom, a chamberlain, a steward, a butler, a waiter, eight footmen, several jugglers, and a musical band. You wouldn't want to travel anywhere without jugglers. (laughs) Well, thank God there were no Maim artists. If the French had got there first, Tom, (laughs) rather than the Spanish. Well, Maim artists have played an important part, haven't they, in the early stages of the story, because it was the only way to communicate the Spanish to communicate with the... uh, the Native Americans. Exactly. Now, he takes Melinche with him, by the way. And it's on this trip that they pass her old native village, the place where she'd been born all those years before, Coatzocoalcos. And he gives her her native village as a, her own estate, her own encomienda. And also, Cortez, who is the father of her son, he says, I will marry you to one of my comrades, a guy called Juan Jaramillo. So that she will become a Spanish. So you are now Spanish. Have Spanish legal rights. You have Spanish rights and your child will have Spanish rights. You know, you might think, well, who wants to be married to some nobody? But actually, this is a big deal for Malinche. Yeah, it's kind of green card. He crucially also on this, this expedition to Honduras, Tom, he takes the last emperor of Mexico with him. He takes Cuauhtémoc. So his feet must be, he's had them burned. He has with his burned feet. He goes. So, I mean, can he walk? I can't imagine he can walk if he's had his feet burned. I don't know. Has he been carried in a litter or something? Yeah, or trudging or on horseback. You can't trudge if you've had your feet burnt. This is a very good question, Tom. Sometimes on the rest is history, we just have to admit that we don't know. And this is something that I don't... I I mean, is he on crutches? Who knows? Okay, all right. It's a horrible situation for him. They get there and they get stuck, basically, in the jungles of southern Mexico. They're going very, very slowly. It's incredibly hot and humid. This is your classic kind of leeches. El Dorado kind of. El Dorado sinking into bogs, kind of weird beasts baying in the night, that kind of. Snakes coiling in the branches overhead. (laughs) This is exactly what happens. And at some point in late February 1525, there's a very garbled, confused incident. What sources there are utterly contradict each other, and it's impossible to tell what's going on. Somebody, we don't know who, could be one of the Mexica, it could be a local Maya, it could be a Spaniard. They come to Cortes and they say, there's a plot to kill you, to assassinate you on this trip. And actually, Cuauhtémoc and the other Aztec nobles are behind it. Is this real? Is this just a pretext? We don't know. Has he gone mad? Exactly. Basically, the upshot is the Spaniards get Cuauhtémoc and they hang him from a tree and that's the end of him. And Bernal Diaz, who is there yet again, he gives him a final speech to Cortes. In his final words, Cuauhtémoc is still addressing Cortés as Melinche. And he says to him, apparently, Oh, Melinche, 
Now I understand your false promises and the kind of death you've had in store for me. You are killing me unjustly. May God demand justice from you as it was taken from me when I entrusted myself to you in my city of Mexico. Well, I mean, if he's misgendering Cortez. Well, yes. He deserves all he gets. Do you know what happens to his body? I don't, actually. Do you? No. Maybe it's still there. Shall we do some live research on the Bodleian? If you want to, Tom. Okay, so this is live research on the Bodleian. The modern-day town of Ixcateopan in the state of Guerrero is home to an ossuary purportedly containing his remains. Oh, but that word purportedly, Tom, is a bit of a... uh... An archaeologist who was a passionate indigenista excavated the bones in 1949. Theo has put in the chat, that's exactly where I thought it was. (laughs) <laughs> I don't believe that Theo is telling the truth there. I think that's yet another unreliable source. A scholarly study of the controversy was published in 2011 and argued that the available data suggests that the grave is an elaborate hoax. Oh no, Tom. Compared by local as a way of generating publicity. Well. And that subsequently supported by Mexican nationalists who wished to use the find for political purposes. So I can't believe that they would have allowed his remains to. No, I think it's unlikely. Right. So that's the end of Cuauhtémoc. The trip to Honduras, it turned out, was a total and utter waste of time. Our lead had already been captured and executed by somebody else. So Cortes then troops very miserably back to Mexico City. Of his original party that set out of 4,000 people, there were just a few hundred left, absolutely standard kind of conquistador jungle expedition. They've all been killed by hunger or disease. Malinche not killed. She goes on to have another daughter called Maria. But once she gets back to Mexico City after this trip, that is the last we ever see of her. It's generally thought that she probably died at the end of the 1520s. So how old would she have been then? Early 20s, I suppose. Something like that. Late 20s. Yeah, something like that, Tom. We don't even know when she was born, you see. We don't have much of a sense of her age even. There's a house in Mexico City. I went to look at it earlier this year. 95 Republica de Cuba Street. And it's a very dilapidated looking house, actually. And it's claimed, almost certainly erroneously, (laughs) that this is where she lived in Mexico City. And people say, if you go there after nightfall, you can hear her ghost crying. I wonder what she's crying over. Well. Guilt, bereavement. Regret. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't hear the ghost, so I can't answer that question. Have we got any listeners who've heard the ghost of Malinche sobbing and have some sense of what it's about? Yeah. Cortez gets back to Mexico City, and for such a cunning man, he's made an absolute schoolboy error. If you're a conquistador, you never leave your base, because if you leave your base once you've got it, somebody else will take it from you. And he arrives back in Mexico City to find it in total chaos. You know, people are arguing about who's in charge. He's also in a mess. Because Diego Velázquez has never forgiven him. And for the rest of his life, he is beset by lawsuits and legal cases and accusations being made by Velázquistas saying that Cortés is corrupt, Cortés is taking bribes, Cortés is not ruling justly. So he's the first European leader on the North American continent to find himself harassed by lawsuits. Exactly, yes. But not the last. But not very good, Tom. So he basically spends the rest of his life between Spain and Mexico. He ends up losing the title of governor. So this is very Columbus, isn't it? It's the same arc. It's very Columbus. It's very Columbus. He tries another expedition, again, very Columbus, where he goes up to California. He goes up to Baja California and he lands there and he doesn't find anything worthwhile. He ends up back in Spain by the 1540s, a completely obscure, forgotten man living on an estate near Seville, and he dies in Seville in 1547. He's not a big celebrity by then. It's not like Hernán Cortés has died, one of the great figures of the age. Gosh, what a moment in history. It's actually, he's forgotten by now. But books about him are coming out, aren't they? They are, but people are ambivalent about him even then. You know, there's a sense of him, to some he's a hero. What's his name? Gamara. Gamara, his former secretary, has written this memoir. I mean, he just writes a kind of mad hagiography. Total hagiography. And even then, there are a lot of people who say it is a hagiography. You know, Cortés has a lot of enemies. Yeah. His body ends up being taken back to Mexico City. So again, this is very Columbus. And his bones are currently in the chapel of the Hospital de Jesus Nazareño, which supposedly he founded, the Hospital of Jesus of Nazareth, which is near the spot, so people say, where he first met Montezuma on the causeway. But, of course, Cortés is very much without honour in Mexico. In Spain... He is well regarded. There's a statue of him in Medellin. He was on a Spanish banknote as recently as 1992. Well, so the fateful year. Yeah, of course. The anniversary of Columbus. But if you look for sort of traces of him in Mexico, Tom, they're all incredibly unflattering. They are, you know, murals showing him as a monster. The Diego Rivera one showing him as a a knock-kneed green syphilitic. Exactly. Exactly. All of that stuff. 
books about him as a war criminal and all this kind of stuff. And actually, there are kind of you know neighborhoods of Mexico City named after some of the Mexica protagonists. So, for example, Cuauhtémoc. But there's no Hernán Cortés, unless I'm much mistaken. So Cuauhtémoc is, I mean, he can be presented as a martyr. Absolutely, he can. And, you know, we're talking about what happens to his bones and the desire to manufacture it. I mean, he is of appeal to nationalists. Yes, yes. He's an inspirational figure to indigenous Mexicans because he held out to the last. He never surrendered. He never told the Spanish there was all this hidden gold. He smiled when they burned his feet. He gave a defiant speech when they were executing him. He's a formidable person. In a weird way, I think his reputation is higher than Montezuma's. Actually, not a weird way at all. Not a weird way at all. I mean, Montezuma is despised, isn't he? I think very harshly. Yes, I agree harshly. As for the other protagonists, just before we talk about the ramifications of the story, Diego Velázquez, who basically was the guy who wanted New Spain for himself, he dies in his bed in the 1520s. So he dies by conquistador standards. Not such a bad ending. Panfilo de Narvaez, you described him as that wildling from Game of Thrones, Tom, with the yeah. big red beard. Yeah. The guy who pitched up, Cortez gouged out his eye on the coast. He leads an absolutely ridiculous expedition, even by conquistador standards, where they go up to Florida again. They end up being attacked by Native Americans in Florida. They end up building boats and going across the southern shore of the United States towards Texas. And he ends up being drowned in Galveston, Texas. And the rest of his expedition, this is the very famous Cabeza de Vaca expedition, they end up as slaves in Texas, and they end up walking 2,000 miles home to Mexico City. Mm. One of those bonkers yeah. stories of the conquistadors. Pedro de Alvarado in his gilet, you know, very much a kind of... Lads on tour. Member of the University yeah. Rugby Club. Yeah, Theo's just written lad in the chat, but a very violent one. He kind of rampages randomly across the kind of highlands of Central America, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, trying to carve out his own kingdom. He tries to get involved with the conquest of the Incas, but he arrives too late. And actually, people who think he sounds like a terrible person will be pleased to hear he comes to a very pathetic end. He gets crushed beneath a boulder or something, doesn't he? A combination of horse and boulder. Yeah. So he agrees to help a friend put down a revolt. They say revolt in inverted commas in Zacatecas, which is in central Mexico. And his horse slips on the hillside and falls on top of him. And apparently at that point, then a boulder rolls down the hill and crushes him to death. It seems unlikely that the boulder would, mm. it's just a coincidence, the boulder would also roll. But anyway, I'm not going to dig into that story too. Uh, he ends up flat. Yeah. Flat on his back. Exactly. He's flattened. And the two other people we should mention are Malinche's son by Hernan Cortez called Martin. He goes to Spain. He ends up becoming a page to Philip II of Spain. He joins the Spanish army, fights for the Spanish comes back to Mexico, is involved in various sort of incomprehensible political plots and things, and ends up dying sometime towards the end of the 16th century. There was a statue of him put up, wasn't there? And Cortes and Malinche in Mexico City. That's right. Very controversial. And somebody stole the image of Martin and it's never been found. Yes. It was a very controversial statue because it was seen as, you know, celebrating yeah, European celebrating the colonialism. And the other interesting character is a girl that we've mentioned a few times 11 years old, Tequich Potsin. So this is lordly daughter. Lordly daughter, the daughter of Montezuma. She ended up living with Cortez when Cortez was in Coyoaca and Cortez said, come and live with me, I shall look after you. And basically she ended up having Cortez's daughter. So it's again, it's quite a dark story, Leonor. But actually her life ended by these standards. It didn't end too badly. She ended up being given a big estate because she was Montezuma's daughter. Yeah. So it's her legal right. She ended up with a massive estate. I think some people say the biggest in all of New Spain. And she lived there quietly with her daughter and actually seems to have been very popular with both Spaniards and the indigenous people. And she died in 1551. So actually things ended better for her than you might have anticipated. A bright note on which to end that roundup. But of course, Dominic, we shouldn't forget lots and lots of nameless people dead. Yes. Raped exploited. So we mustn't forget them. No, no, no. And of course, I mean, the big thing, the thing that underlies this whole story that matters more than any of the details we've talked about is the coming of smallpox. That is the thing that tips the balance of the whole story and fundamentally alters the demographic picture of the Americas. Now, some people, sometimes when they tell that story, there's an element of blame like it was the Europeans' fault for bringing smallpox. They should have known better and all this. But of course, they have no concept. No. There was no way they weren't ever going to bring it. You know, the Europeans were going to arrive at some point, And when they did, these viruses were bound to come with them. And diseases are taken back across the Atlantic, aren't they? 
I mean, not, they're not as devastating. But Well, this is the Columbian Exchange, isn't it, Tom? Mm. I mean, it's the landmark moments in human history when so many, you know, fruits, vegetables, seeds, animals, all these kinds of things are taken back and forth. And the new world and the old world, which have previously for thousands of years been detached from one another and ignorant of one another, where they become united. And it's often a very, very dark story. An obvious question. Could the Mashika have maintained their independence? This whole story has been a succession of moments where Cortez is dodging a bullet, where the whole expedition could have been absolutely destroyed. Do you think there's any possibility that the Spanish wouldn't have come back, even if Cortez's expedition had failed? It's the million dollar question, really, isn't it? So could there still be a Mashika state with whom the Spanish have diplomatic relations or whatever? It's a really good question. We know from the New World more generally that every single corner of it was infiltrated by Europeans, wasn't it? And not just the Americas, Australia, New Zealand. Moctezuma is very able. Yeah. We know that he plans, he's careful, he's very good at organization. He defeats Cortez. He finds Spaniards who are subornable enough that they can train his warriors. Does that change anything? I don't know. I'm slightly playing devil's advocate here because I think it was always going to happen. Yeah, no, I think it's a good question. I think, first of all, the fact that Mesoamerica is so divided means it's easy for the Spaniards and for any European power. Yeah, divide and rule. Whoever, however it worked out, there would have been some constellation of forces that involved, you know, there would have been jockeying, there would have been geopolitical rivalry and stuff within Mesoamerica that would mean that it would be very hard for the big target, which is the empire of the Aztecs, to survive. That said, I suppose a good what if would be, what if straight away or at some point Montezuma had done a deal with the Spaniards? What if he had surrendered to Charles V? Maybe not with Cortes, somebody as rapacious as Cortes, but what if, for example, he'd managed to do a deal with Diego Velasquez? He said, listen, let's not fight each other. I suppose then you're still faced with the same... You're being sucked into it, isn't it? You're being kind of ground into the churning machine. Yeah. That is the combination of legalism and militarism, which is so devastating. And Spanish sort of armed entrepreneurs, to use the phrase we've used before, Matthew Restall's phrase, they're still going to arrive, aren't they? I suppose you're then in the position of Native Americans in North America. And how important is it to world history that it's Christian Europeans who turn up? Well, I know your answer to that, Tom. But who else is going to turn up? Because the geographical proximity means that it's got to be people from the Atlantic seaboard. You have the plausible possibilities of what? The Chinese? The Chinese aren't going to do it because we know that they turn against the idea of... Muslim fleets? Or Muslim fleets, I suppose. Going from Morocco or... The Ottomans? Maybe the Ottomans would have sufficient... I mean, unlikely. But again, very unlikely they're in the wrong geographical position. It's hard to imagine. All right, so reframe it. How important is it to the ability of Europeans to expand across the globe that they conquer Mexico? Does it establish a template? Oh, it definitely establishes a template. Yes, it absolutely does. It establishes a template for the Spanish to conquer the rest of the continent. It also obviously inspires everybody else to get in on the act. Yeah. France, England. And the Protestants. Protestant, exactly. Of England and the Netherlands. Yes, exactly. I mean, actually, they do it quite late, don't they? I mean, it's remarkable how long it takes the English, for example. It just shows what a backwater England was in relative terms, that England takes so long to get up and, and firing. The interesting question is why the French are so slow. Well, they don't need to. That's the thing. They've got France. That's the thing. Why would you leave France? Which is also <laughs> the reason the Ottomans don't do it and the Chinese. Yeah, it's backward, poverty-stricken, Atlantic-facing, yeah. marginal states that have an, an interest in you know, making this terrifying crossing over the Atlantic. Actually, funnily enough, it's why the Portuguese don't invest in um, Columbus. Yeah, because they've already got there. They've got their own sea routes yeah. going east. Why do they need to bother with yeah. this? And in a way, you could argue only the Spanish could have done this. It obviously transforms Spain's place in the world economy. Turns Spain into a superpower, the flow of gold, although the flow of gold ends up being very destabilizing because of the massive European inflation. Whether there's any scenario, to go back to your earlier thing, whether there is any scenario that involves the new world holding out against old world colonization, I find that utterly implausible. Yeah, I do. Because I think once they've developed the technology, the ships with the famous triangular sails, Tom, and other, other such things, once they've developed the technology to get across, the sheer competitiveness of European states, plus the entrepreneurship and the acquisitiveness, the greed, basically, of individuals, means that they are always going to come in greater and greater numbers. And the biological balance favours them because of smallpox. So one final question, to go back to your book. Yes. The Fall of the Aztecs. Brilliant note on which to end, Tom. I get a sense reading some of the best scholars on this theme that 
it's not just that they are hostile to European colonialism, but they're hostile to the very drama and excitement of the narratives. So Matthew Restall, who is, I think, by far the most brilliant of these scholars, in his book, he, he writes about Cortez. Yeah. And he says, of course, there's this tradition in which he is you know, cast as a saintly figure. He's a hero, the center of this great drama. And then he talks, of course, there's this other tradition that he is cast as a villain, a kind of satanic figure. And he rejects both of them and says that they situate him at the center of a great drama yeah. and they burnish his renown. And therefore he says, firstly, Cortez is a mediocrity. He's the plaything of forces and factions that he's just kind of tossed about willy-nilly. And secondly, he deconstructs the narrative so completely that he's essentially saying we have no possibility of knowing what the narrative is. Yeah. Yeah. And that seems to me just as important that if you can deconstruct this narrative that we've actually been telling, then you you leech it of the sense of excitement that even if you are horrified by what's happening, I mean, you can't help but feel that this is a gripping narrative. And there's a sense in which now the very idea of this being a narrative is something that should be opposed. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, you've engaged with his writings quite heavily in, in your own writing, but you are basically doing the absolute opposite of what he's doing because you are presenting a narrative that can be understood by children. So in a sense, you have to cut out nuance, doubt, yes. all the kind of the haze of uncertainty that surrounds yeah. these narratives. You're absolutely right, Tom, and it opens up loads of different questions. So one of them is about the difference between writing for children and for adults. You've written for children yourself. Of course, your Wolf Girl I have. book about the Greeks, the gods, and so on. And as you will know, when you're writing for children, the demands are very different. Children are not stupid, so you're not dumbing down for them necessarily. Of course not. But a child reader who is reading a book voluntarily for pleasure, when they could be reading Harry Potter or playing a video game or whatever, they will tire very quickly of you saying, now some historians think that. Yeah, but not to dwell on that, rather to dwell on the fact that this is one of the stories that you've chosen to tell. Yeah. So you've done the, the World Wars, you've done Alexander, you've done Cleopatra. You know, These are the great classic stories. So a distrust of telling this story. This, I would say, yes, is the single most astonishing narrative that we've done in all the episodes, you know, all the topics that we've covered in The Rest is History, the risks that Cortez takes, but also for the drama of this kind of unique meeting of two great powers yes. from different worlds, kind of almost different time zones. I mean, our scholars who are, for entirely understandable reasons, very, very ideologically opposed to everything that, say, Cortez represents, are they justified in being nervous of the sheer drama of this story? I think they are justified in being nervous. I understand why they're doing it, because they're being nervous for ideological reasons, as you say. So Matthew Restall, for example, is explicit in his book in saying, you know, I want to take out the glamour from this story and the melodrama. I want to show it as a horrible, you know, he loathes Cortez. He hates the Spanish project, if you like. He thinks it represents rape, torture, slavery, exploitation, all of these things. I don't think I'm putting words in his mouth. And he would say, to tell it in a kind of roaring, swashbuckling style is to give them what they want, is to miss what he sees as the horrible realism of the story. So is that what we've done in the series? I think when the rest is history, and actually not just on the rest is history, I think lots of historical work more generally has its cake and eats it, doesn't it? And I think we've both probably been guilty of that in our own writings. Mm. So when I think about, I mean, on a totally different note, you know, you often tease me about my books on the 60s saying, you know, most people were <laughs> yes. listening to the sound of music and eating chicken Kiev or whatever and not actually having fun at all. Hanging out on Carnaby Street. But I have my cake and eat it in those books. I have long descriptions of Carnaby Street and the Beatles and all of that stuff, while also saying, actually, most people have very humdrum lives. Just like you, when you write about the Romans and you tell the most fantastic stories about the emperors, and you also then say, ah, but we know this probably, you know, these are from sources that were party pre or whatever. But you see, I think doing it now, and just I'm thinking aloud, really, thinking how I feel about the story that we've been telling, I think actually I would come at a slightly different conclusion, which is that humans love these kind of stories. Of course they do, Tom. Even if the stories end in tragedy and horror, we still love them. So throughout these episodes, you know, there have been echoes of Greek tragedy, biblical accounts of the fall of Jerusalem, classical history. And these are great stories as well. 
And the horror is interfused with the drama and the excitement. Yeah. And I think there is no escaping from the fact that the horror isn't something that can be divorced from the drama. It's kind of interfused. I totally agree with you, Tom. I totally agree. And it says something unsettling, perhaps, about... About human nature. About human nature and about human desire for stories. And what we want from history. I completely agree with you. And that's why, actually, the difference between writing for children and writing for adults is not as great as one might think. So when you're writing for children, you're very conscious that ultimately what most of them will crave is action, excitement. They love the horror, by the way. I mean, I know because I go into schools to talk to groups of sometimes quite small children, children eight or nine or something. They can't get enough of Henry VIII having an enema or people having their heads chopped off by the guillotine or whatever it might be. Now, we all laugh about that and we say, ah, kids, they're very bloodthirsty. But actually, adults are no different. If you look at the podcasts that we've done that get the most, you know, the Nazis. But I think with this, there's another reason why it's such an incredible story, which is that there is heroism on both sides. Yeah, agreed. So Cortez, whatever you think about him, I mean, he's clearly a horrible person, but his courage and his willingness to gamble makes it almost impossible to read what's happening and not feel a sense of admiration for him. And I think also what has happened, particularly with the kind of the brilliant scholars who are writing about the Mexica, the Aztecs now, we have a much better understanding of what made their civilization tick and a sense of the wonder of it. And the tragedy when they lose. Yes. And so, you know, that's the essence, I guess, of a tragedy or a kind of a great story is that you can read about this or listen to this story and identify with you know, the boldness of what Cortez is attempting and feel the kind of grief for the horror that is visited on this extraordinary civilization. And you can feel both at the same time. And that's part of the power, perhaps, uniquely of this story. Yeah. Um, I can't think of anything where that tension is quite so strong. I agree completely, Tom. And actually, my publisher said to me, when you write the preface to your book, you should point this out. So I have a couple of lines. I'll just read it. The fall of the Aztecs is often a very bloody story. For centuries, people used to tell it as a clash between wicked Aztecs and gallant Spaniards. These days, it's more common to tell it from the opposite angle, casting the Aztecs as noble underdogs and the Spanish conquerors as greedy monsters. But I don't see it that way. There was plenty of cruelty on both sides, but plenty of courage too. Was Montezuma a hero? Was Cortes a villain? Or was it the other way around? Who were more bloodthirsty, the Aztecs or the Spaniards? Or is it a bit simplistic to think of them that way? Wise words. And I think that's exactly the approach that actually we should take as historians writing about this. To see these people as actors in a world where they're very confused, they're trying to make sense of what's going on. It's an unprecedented situation. There are heroes and villains on both sides. Of course, the Spanish win. And so the Spanish behavior afterwards is immensely shocking to us. But at the same time, the Aztecs are not, it's easy to turn them into saintly martyrs, but of course they weren't. I mean, there were lots of people in Mesoamerica who absolutely loathed, like Malinche, Mm. who loathed the Aztecs. And actually getting that complexity across is the key to the story. Well, thank you, Dominic. So your book, The Fall of the Aztecs, is out now available in good bookshops. Make an ideal Christmas present for any historically enthused children out there. And thank you so much for this brilliant account of this extraordinary episode in history. And thank you very much if you have made it this far. Very (laughs) grateful to you for accompanying us on this mighty epic. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Tom has been very indulgent and very patient, I have to say. Haven't. I think it's a brilliant story. (laughs) Well, I've always been obsessed by this story, as I think anyone interested in history must be. All right. So I'm absolutely thrilled that we've done it. So on that note, goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. (laughs) 